0: Welcome to Dig, the history podcast. <laughs>
1: As many of you know I love the Civil War. <laughs> no really? <laughs> yeah it's sort of an open secret. It's been a difficult summer to be a Civil War historian with the intense debates over the ways that we remember the war in public spaces. The meanings of Confederate statues and other memorials is suddenly being fought out on Facebook and Fox News. It's been frankly exhausting. So when we decided to do a series on war, I felt really torn. I wanted to talk about this thing that I love and I feel a professional duty to do that, but I also sort of wanted to escape it. Mm. So today we're going to deal with the history behind why we have Confederate memorials and what they mean uh, to a certain extent. But we're also going to do that um, by talking about something fun. Um, I'm using fun in the Civil War historian sense, and that is guerrilla warfare, the irregular forms of war that took place largely in the Western reaches of the war's borders. So with that said, I'm Sarah Hanley-Cousins.
0: And I'm Avril Earls, Nice try trying, trying to trick me there. <laughs> I'm so-and-so.
1: <laughs> I wasn't sure who I was writing it with.
0: You wrote my name the rest of the time. I know, but
1: at the time, I didn't oh, know. all right. Okay. And we are your historians for this episode of DIG.
0: Dive into the story. We want to just take a minute to ask you to make sure you are subscribed wherever you get your podcasts. And if you get a chance, please leave us a rating and a review on iTunes. Thank you. We love you.
1: (laughs) We should probably start off here with a little context. I won't get into the actual start of the war or what caused it. Cough, cough. Slavery. Uh, (laughs) But I do want to offer a little bit of background. A really critical part of understanding the irregular warfare during the Civil War is understanding what set the precedent for it, the conflict for Kansas during the 1850s. And I'll explain what we mean by irregular warfare shortly, but I bet you can probably figure it out for yourself. In 1854, as part of the ongoing battle over the extension of slavery, Congress passed the Kansas-Nebraska Act. Kansas, which was at the time a territory, wanted to enter the Union as a state. This would be fine but it had the potential to tip the careful balance between slave and free states. The Kansas Nebraska act determined that Kansans themselves could choose whether to be a slave state or a free state through a process called popular sovereignty, which was just a fancy way of saying a popular vote. Now the problem that quickly arose was that both pro slavery and anti-slavery people, both Northerners and Southerners came flocking into Kansas to try to influence the vote.
0: Most of the pro slavery folks that came into Kansas were from neighboring Missouri, which was a slave state, albeit not one with a particularly huge population. These men became known as border ruffians, or sometimes pukes, a pejorative term for poor pro slavery whites. The New York Tribune. Oh, did I say New York? The New York Tribune reported. Imagine a fellow, tall, slim, but athletic, with yellow complexion, hairy-faced, with a dirty flannel shirt, red or blue or green, (laughs) a pair of commonplace but dark-colored pants tucked into an uncertain altitude by a leather belt in which a dirty-handed... Handled bowie knife is stuck rather ostentatiously, An eyes slightly whiskey red, and teeth the color of a walnut. Oh, gross. Mm-hmm. Such is your border ruffian of the lowest type. His body might be a compound of gutta percha.
1: Gutta percha. Gutta percha. It's a kind of sort of 19th century pre plastic plastic. Interesting. Yeah.
0: Johnny cake and badly smoked bacon. His spirit, the refined part, old bourbon, double rectified. These pukes, end quote, these pukes were described as the opposite of controlled, genteel, middle-class northerners. On the other hand, the anti-slavery people who rushed to Kansas were described as fine, upstanding Puritan stock from New England, armed with their Beecher Bibles, or rifles that were purchased by religious leaders back East. Of course, this didn't this isn't quite how Southern or pro-slavery forces interpreted things. Instead, they saw the northerners slash anti-slavery forces as hopelessly perverted, obsessed with blacks, although they, they didn't quite phrase it like that, and dedicated to overthrowing all proper human hierarchies in terms of gender and race. In Kansas. This ideological conflict exploded into real vigilante violence in 1855, most famously with the massacre at Potawatomi. It's not a real word. <laughs> at Patong. Potawatomi. 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 Stop it. Got it. I'm ready uh, now. Okay at Pottawatomie Creek, led by radical abolitionist John Brown, who hacked five pro slavery men to death with broadswords. Later that summer, Brown helped to lead small scale raids against pro slavery homestead, causing property damage and generally terrorizing settlers. Sometimes the violence escalated into full battles, such as the Battle of oh,
1: fucking me. <laughs>
0: such as the Battle of Osawatomi, where where pro-slavery forces clashed with Brown's anti-slavery men, resulting in several deaths, including John Brown's own son.
1: So as an aside here, there's my my husband and I have this inside joke about John Brown, which sounds really nerdy and dorky, but um, there's this. In this the Ken Burns Civil War documentary sure. from the early nineties, mm-hmm. they, they have as one of their like commentators this very famous Civil War military historian named Ed Beers, and he's talking about John Brown, and he's he's like very contemplative and he says, John Brown, John Brown, John Brown. <laughs> like three times in a row. And so every time I say John Brown, like even when I'm lecturing, I'm like, John Brown. It's an ad beer stroke. Okay, moving on.
0: Super good joke.
1: Yeah. <laughs> our, our, some people will get it.
0: I think everyone gets it. I'm
1: sure. <laughs> yep,
0: everyone in the whole world. Some some people will, All I promise. All listeners. Okay, good.
1: Moving right along. Even though President Franklin Pierce did send a small contingent of U.S. Army uh, soldiers into Kansas, it was never a real war. But nevertheless, something like 56 people died in the violent clashes between pro and anti-slave forces, neither of whom were officially sanctioned military. So really... Bleeding Kansas was the first wave of Civil War era guerrilla violence, and it set the stage for the kind of small scale, non sanctioned, ad hoc violence that would occur when large scale violence broke out on a national scale. Even more, it set the ideological groundwork for more violence. Missourians saw Northerners and Easterners as elitist, greedy, holier than thou invaders who wanted to destroy their way of life. Northerners saw Missourians as pukes essentially rednecks and poor white trash, who refuse to become educated or civilized. Um, And just as a side note, we're going to be focusing a lot on Missouri. We are going to kind of venture out of Missouri a little bit here and there. But there's a reason we focus on Missouri so much, and that's because it's an epicenter of guerrilla violence. Um, As we saw when we talked about Bleeding Kansas, a lot Mm -hmm. of the um, combatants – are actually coming from Missouri. So, Missouri is sort of this hotbed of people who are interested in this kind of violence. It's a dumb way to put it, but you know what I mean? Also, <clears throat> I believe
0: that they go by Missourians.
1: Excuse me, Missourians.
0: Yeah. So, what happened when war actually broke out? Missouri never chose sides and remained a border state during the war. Missourians felt themselves both disconnected and internally divided. Some Missourians were deeply invested and wanted to protect slavery. They were Westerners and didn't feel particularly connected to either the Deep South or the North. Others supported the Union. How would they fit into the conflicts brewing between North and South? What would become of in-between places like Missouri in such a conflict?
1: So how does Missouri end up devolving into guerrilla violence? Well, I think that we need a little bit of context about what the real military looks like in order to understand the opposite. We have to understand what the the majority was. The United States had an army like we do now in 1861. I know. Right. One that was made up of people who enlisted to serve in a professional capacity. Again, again, You know, doesn't sound surprising because that's what we have today. Mm -hmm. For the most part, these men served out their careers in forts around the United States. But after the Mexican War in the 1840s, few of them saw any action except in clashes taking place uh, with Native Americans. There were also officers, many who attended military academies like West Point or the Citadel or VMI, the Virginia Military Institute, who had a more thorough training in leadership and tactics. But even they had fairly little military experience except those who were old enough to have seen service in the Mexican War. The regular army, as it was then called, so are you seeing why we have regular and irregular? Mm-hmm. The regular army, as it was called, was was pretty small.
0: In April 1861, when the tensions between North and South became a shooting war at Fort Sumter, One of the first things that President Abraham Lincoln did was call for troops. This regular army was going to be suffering before they even got on the battlefield because southern servicemen, and there were a lot of them, abandoned the army and flocked to the brand new Confederate armed services. There was zero chance that the regular army could win anything without more soldiers. Men volunteered to serve what was then referred to as the Union Army, or to the Confederate Army. They received uniforms, paychecks, rations, supplies, and training, and were held to the same standards uh, as regular Army soldiers, except that they only signed up for short-term enlistments ranging from 30 days, 3 years, or the duration of the war. This is the army that we all learn about in elementary school or on class trips to battlefields like Gettysburg or Antietam, dressed in blue and gray uniforms, marching in straight lines, and doing their fighting on big in big pitched battles. Both Confederate and Union soldiers were considered the most dutiful, brave, manly, best men in the country. Of course, some of them were real jerks <laughs> yes. But when viewed through idealized, patriotic, rose-colored glasses, um, they were all heroes.
1: These armies were huge. The estimated number of men who served in the Union Army overall is something like 2.2 million, and this makes me think back to Marissa and Elizabeth's conversation about the size of armies mm. as we as they moved through the military revolution, how they're growing larger and larger. Right. The Union Army was bigger than any of the armies that they mentioned. So just as a point of comparison, the estimated number of people in all American armed forces right now is 1.2 million, uh, with a few hundred thousand more in reserve units. But almost all of those people, uh, almost all of those millions of people who were in the Union and Confederate armies served in pretty concentrated locations. The armies were largely divided between two geographic regions that we call theaters, the Eastern Theater and the Western Theater. The Eastern Theater is the one most of us are the most familiar with. The big battles like Gettysburg and Antietam, they all took place in the Eastern Theater. It was largely located in Virginia, Maryland, the Carolinas, Georgia, a teensy bit of Pennsylvania, as as we know from the Battle of Gettysburg, takes place in Pennsylvania. And, of course, the troops that were stationed around Washington, D.C. The Western Theater was further inland in states like Georgia western Georgia Alabama Louisiana Tennessee Mississippi and Kentucky the armies spent most of their time in these theaters on campaigns or a long-term sort of plan for military action the armies spent most of their time on campaigns which are sort of long-term plans for military action in in those areas So what this meant was that large swaths of contested territory like the borderlands in states that had populations of people sympathetic to the Union and those sympathetic to the Confederacy, such as Missouri and Kentucky, were often left without any real armies on the ground. There weren't troops there or there were very few troops there. But just because
0: they didn't always have boots on the ground did not mean that all was well in those states. In states like Kansas and Missouri, entire communities were divided. You could be a strict unionist living next door to your neighbors who were Confederate supporters.
1: This sort of reminds me about of right after the election Mm. where people... Who maybe more progressive-minded people who are feeling a little battered were sort of looking around at their neighbors and trying to decide like, okay, who who are you? I remember Marissa saying this a lot like, where are you, Trumpers? Like, show yourselves, right? (laughs) You make me see like. That's what it literally a quote of something that. And then she went
0: on a witch hunt and persecuted all of those people she could find.
1: (laughs) But so you have people who are, have real ideological differences living side by side. Um, I think that we can testify to what that's like today. I mean, yeah. granted, we don't have a guerrilla warfare going on, but there have been violent clashes, right? Yes. yes.
0: Um, so you know how we always hear this trope of the Civil War being brother against brother. Uh, it was never more true than in border states like Missouri, Kansas, and Kentucky. Often, the tension between disagreeing neighbors broke out into small-scale violence. Actually, a great deal of the violence that took place in border states was random and opportunistic and only really vaguely connected to the greater struggle. One example that the late historian Michael Thelman described happened in February 1863 in Missouri. Three men broke into the home of Obadiah and Nancy Levitt, shot Obadiah in the back, and threatened Nancy. Actually, in a sort of interesting callback to our Marquis de Sade episode, they held a pistol to her head, pulled the trigger, only to have it misfire and failed to kill her. Obadiah survived the shot, and Nancy pulled him up on the bed to keep him safe, but the men wouldn't leave. She asked them why they were doing this, and they responded they had enough against him to kill him, and they knew he reported to the Federals. The men shot Obadiah again, this time through the head, stole the couple's horses and tack, and took off.
1: And that's what much of the violence looked like in western states like Kansas and Missouri. Scattershot, disorganized, random, senseless, and brutal. Gorillas identified with both Union and Confederate causes. Not at the same time. I mean, different groups of gorillas. <clears throat> You know, identified with those two causes. In broad terms, Confederate guerrillas were called bushwhackers and Union guerrillas were called jayhawkers. They threatened and terrorized people for their political leanings, but they were also just opportunistic jerks, stealing horses, forcing farmers to hand over their stores of cash and goods uh, and occasionally raping women. In some cases, they were just out joyriding, literally just enjoying the thrill that came with intimidating people and cutting a dashing figure on horseback. In one case, the four Cardi brothers terrorized their own former friends, causing confusion and quite a bit of pain. Their former friend named Andrew Love testified that one of the Cardies robbed him at gunpoint and stole his horse and that later another Cardi brother came to say that he would remain Love's friend and had tried to stop his brother from robbing him. Guerrilla warfare sort of muddled and strained and broke relationships and the former societal order.
0: Guerrilla warfare also broke the laws of war. 19th century wars were horrific and brutal in their own right but they were also, at least in idealized terms, gentlemen's affairs. Soldiers were held to the codes of military law, which set strict standards for behavior both on and off the battlefield. The military was held to the Articles of War, initially instituted in 1775 by the Continental Congress, then updated periodically through the Civil War era. The Articles regulated everything from how soldiers should act in church. And yes, it did strongly suggest that all soldiers and officers attend worship services. To how they spoke no swearing. Nope, no swearing. Marissa never would have made it in, oh, in the I army. Could have done it. She would have been probably court martialed and thrown in the stocks. Cashiered. Mm-hmm. Uh, to not drinking. Oh, geez, this is really just not for Marissa. Um... <laughs> <laughs> to <laughs> You really better do a good job at this history thing. <laughs> to not going absent without leave or sleeping at your post. <laughs> yep. In 1863, they were amended by General Order 100, also called the Lieber Code, which sort of... Ex- I think it's
1: Lieber Code, but... Didn't we just have this argument about Leiden versus Leiden? Are you doing Pilates? I say Lieber, too. Yeah, yeah. Are you doing what Pilates? I is I, and then it's, it's I-E. I-E. It's I-E. E. He was a German it's immigrant. I-E, then it's I-E, then it's Lieber. Okay. It's Lieber. Okay. I think I, I've just heard most people say Lieber, but it doesn't really it's matter. It's like
0: Lieben's realm, except there's no I in that word. Um. So it's not like that at all. But it is. Okay. <sighs> <No. laughs> also called the Lieber Code, or Liber Code if you're Sarah or Carol Emberton. (laughs) However you want to say it. However you want to say it, which sort of expanded the rules of war to reach beyond the day-in and day-out activities of life in the ranks. It gave specific regulations on things like how to institute martial law in occupied territories, but also things that we might consider war crimes today. Uh, For example, Article 16 of the... uh, of the Lieber Code reads, Military necessity does not admit of cruelty, that is, the infliction of suffering for the sake of suffering or for revenge, nor of maiming or wounding except in fight, nor of torture to extort confessions. It does not admit the use of poison in any way, nor the wanton devastation of a district. It admits of deception, but disclaims acts of perfidy. And in general, military does not include an act of hostility, which makes the return to peace unnecessarily difficult. So essentially, it's regulating how you actually conduct a war. You can't wantonly commit uh, atrocities. Right. Or slaughter people or or torture people. You can't be overly deceptive um, or, or, you know, just particularly right. bad
1: right ungentlemanly right it's it's sort of saying that all of these things are probably going to happen during the course of war but we have to make sure that we that there are limits to right. our violence and the use of violence and who we use violence against
0: and those who obviously uh commit these atrocities or whatever that's war crimes right right so it actually does say that citizens of hostile countries are enemies, but also makes a more nuanced argument that we have uh, progressed to a point of modernity where we don't murder unarmed civilians, we don't rape, we don't terrorize. Right,
1: and and of course none of this is to say that those things didn't actually happen. Right, right? they Obviously, they do they happen. Did, yeah. um, the Library Code is about making sure that those things aren't happening wantonly. Um, that we're not going in and just raping and pillaging. Mm-hmm. Um, so you
0: can only rape people a little bit.
1: Well, no, I mean you can't. You can't rape people at like all. I mean sad. that's 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 in the Articles of War, I believe. But murdering um, people is. A but little there's bit. also an understanding that things happen in the course of warfare, mm-hmm. um, and so no, you shouldn't do those things, and we'll prosecute you if you do. But also an understanding that these things happen during the upheaval that is war. Mm-hmm. If that makes any sense. The Liber Code is actually Liber, Lieber. I don't know how to pronounce it. I've always said Liber. Okay. The Liber Code is actually really beautifully written and surprisingly wise. Um, It's really not black and white sort of legal language that you would expect. The Articles of War are very, Mm. you know, strict. The Liber Code is not. It's very kind of almost poetic. It even um, delves into how armies should deal with things like libraries and works of art um, in general, the main thrust of both the Articles of War and the Liber Code is that war is not actually chaos. It needs to be done with precision, with intention, and discipline. And this seems really disingenuous and naive to us today, knowing what we know about war crimes and atrocities that do take place, the just immense civilian deaths in World War One, or even World War II, mm. for example, or um, talk about American atrocities, the massacre at Milai. But 19th century military officers and soldiers, for the most part, really believed in this. And they believed that there was a difference. There had to be a difference between civilized warfare and senseless chaos. So why are we telling you about the Lieber Code and the Articles of War? Because guerrilla warfare turned this order of war on its head. Guerrillas destroyed property they stole goods simply for the hell of it they terrorized they killed civilians uh, not accidentally mm-hmm. right civilians are killed during the civil war accidentally there's mm-hmm. a really famous case of this woman who was shot in the back while leaning over to pull a loaf of bread out of her oven during the battle of Gettysburg her name is Jenny Wade Poor girl. um they they die accidentally but guerrillas are killing them on purpose mm-hmm. right And and they generally, gorillas, answered to no higher authority. They refused to be gentlemen. A really good example of this is the James Boys, Frank and Jesse. Does that ring a bell? Jesse James. Jesse James. I've never heard of that. I'm gonna go down in flames. Nope. You just ruined everything. Just like Jesse James. Sorry, that was my share. Share moment. Okay. (laughs) Ruined. That's my favorite share song, and like nobody knows it. What's wrong? Nothing. You're just so so, funny. You're so precious. You're like 45 years old. I am. You're
0: so basic. (laughs) No, loving
1: Cher is not basic. (laughs) It's a higher... So Frank and Jesse James of Cher fame um, go on to be very famous, obviously, outlaws after the Civil War. Um, at one point in 1864, they have this strategy of going into homes in northwest Missouri, dressed in Union uniforms, calling out that they were Union soldiers and asking for directions, which seems fairly harmless. When a farmer would come out of the house, they would shoot him dead. Why? Who knows? There's like no reason for it. Mm-hmm. Right. They're literally just picking people off. Um so stories like this show us a couple of things. First, it shows us how little bushwhackers like the James Boys cared for the ethics of war. Gentlemen citizen, sho- <laughs> gentlemen citizen soldiers would have found dressing up in the enemy's uniform, just that alone, they would have found inappropriate. Mm-hmm. It's actually against the articles of war. It also shows us just how random and senseless guerrilla violence could be. It was impossible for Missouri homesteaders to know what they were getting when those Union men came to the door. Were they actual lost Union soldiers? Were they Union soldiers or Jayhawkers, actual Union soldiers or Jayhawkers that were just coming to pillage? Or were they bushwhackers in disguise? There was just no way to know.
0: Another big difference between regular and irregular war had to do with the role of women. In regular warfare, women were often not present, or present only on the margins, camp followers like laundresses and prostitutes, women in neighboring towns and villages, and nurses. They weren't typically at the center of violence. In the chaotic, irregular warfare that takes place in Missouri, however, women were both combatants and victims. Women cared for guerrilla bands by cooking for them and doing their laundry. In some cases, this was because they were deeply invested in the fighters. They were lovers or kin, for example, or they felt strongly about the cause. In many more cases, it was simply survival tactics. Women tried to appease both sides by feeding those who came to their door and telling them what they wanted to hear in order to make it to the next day. There were, was real tension between women and soldiers. Sometimes Confederate-leaning Missouri women would give Union soldiers a hard time, and they would be protected by most, not all, soldiers' adherence to military codes of conduct. Right. Women were also used by guerrillas specifically for this reason. Because most Union soldiers were reluctant to hurt or abuse women, Gorillas used women to provide them food and shelter, knowing that they wouldn't be hurt if they were being sheltered in the home
1: of a a woman. Right. They'd be reluctant to kind of, like, storm into a house of a known widow or something to get soldiers out of it, knowing that they would be hurting, potentially hurting a woman in the process. Union
0: union soldiers did not necessarily treat Southern sympathizing women like ladies, either. They felt real contempt for these women. Uh, Union soldiers burned down barns, stole livestock, and trashed homes. Sometimes they took some fancy ideological footwork to accomplish their misdeeds. Right. Um... Gorillas might terrorize a woman, entering her home, searching it, brandishing women, uh, weapons. (laughs) Here's my women that I have. (laughs) Brandishing weapons, threatening to kill her kin, but all the while believing themselves to still be good men because they didn't specifically threaten her.
1: Right. Hey, we're going to pause here for just a second for a word from one of our sponsors. We are so lucky to be sponsored by our alma mater and Elizabeth and Marissa's current school, the University at Buffalo History Department. We know you're a history nerd because you are listening to us, and UB History is offering you the perfect chance to deepen your historical knowledge even more with a master's in history. You can get your master's in history with three semesters full-time plus one semester with a single three-unit course. Classes are all once a week seminars with small class sizes and lots of one on one study with faculty who are leaders in their fields. Courses are all offered in the late afternoon, 4 p.m., and evening, 7 p.m. The department is intellectually stimulating, but also incredibly friendly and incredibly supportive, as I think all of us can testify. If you're interested in museum or nonprofit work, there is a public history concentration available that pairs historical training with business and nonprofit skills. You don't even have to take the GRE to apply. And as an added incentive, the department is currently offering $3,000 fellowships to the first 15 people to enroll for 2018. An additional fund and additional opportunities for funding are also available to qualified students. So what are you waiting for, my friends? This is your chance. You can get more information about the program at history.buffalo.edu, or you can talk to me personally at 716-645-3433 or handly2 at buffalo.edu to talk about how to start an application. I hope that some of you will apply.
0: It would seem like this environment would be a prime location and situation for a lot of rape. Um, but there actually isn't a lot documented. That doesn't mean, of course, that there wasn't a lot, but there's not a lot documented. Mm-hmm. Rape did happen. Michael Feldman recounts one powerful story of gorillas raping two women in the presence of one of the women's husbands. But men did terrorize women, often doing everything but rape and, and kill them.
1: This becomes... Sort of a trope of pop culture about the relationship between Southern civilians and Union soldiers that the show, have you ever seen the show Hell on Wheels on AMC? Yes. So so this is a, a sort of a trope of how Confederate soldiers are depicted in television shows and in movies that. Um, they become more violent. They become, in in some instances, they become gorillas because their wives have Mm. been raped or murdered. And that's what happens Mm. in Mm -hmm. Hell on Wheels. It's also the plot of the movie The Outlaw Josie Wales with Clint Eastwood. It's about these confederate gorillas and he's he becomes a gorilla he becomes a gorilla because um, his family has been murdered. Interesting. This just closed and I have to find my spot again.
0: And hell wheels, okay. though. he just goes west. He's going to find the like Union survival. soldiers to kill him.
1: <laughs> right. But it's it. Be, it's like, yeah, it's, it's, a, trope it's a trope of yeah. Um, yeah. it's not just these two. I can't think of another example, but this happens in a lot of Western movies mm-hmm. that either it drives the, the Confederate soldier to become a guerrilla yeah. or to go out west and mm-hmm. embrace violence in other ways in Indian wars or whatever. Yeah. Um, it's, it's become sort of a thing. Okay, so coming back to our story here. Uh, women were not simply victims, though. Women, as Averill mentioned, played a critical role in supplying gorillas. They also played a role in keeping them going ideologically and spiritually. My favorite example of this comes from the work of a historian named Joseph Bilen. Um, And bear with me while I fangirl here a little bit about this article that Joseph Bylin wrote about um, what he calls the gorilla shirt. Um, so Bylin is describing the clothing that Confederate guerrillas wore. They did not wear Confederate uniforms. They wore their hair long and loose. They wore rings and kind of rakish hats. Not necessarily things that were stylish at the time, um, but things that they had made their own, if that makes sense. Things that were kind of out of fashion or you know would get kind of like a weird sideways glance from other people but Mm -hmm. they made them they created their put their own meaning into this this clothing okay um i'm trying to think of an example of this now never mind of it now of how like people wear things that you'd be like why are like how mom jeans have come back or like high-waisted jeans have come back
0: excuse me they have
1: yeah yeah
0: no, but I would think it'd be even something more in your face. It, more like being a punk. Right. Okay. It's it's a
1: it's a clothing that has its own culture. Right. Or, or like, a culture that has its own clothing.
0: Yeah. It would be designed to be in your face. You, it wouldn't be it would be against fashion.
1: Right. Yes. That's thank you. Mm-hmm. You're better at this than I am. Punk in photographs they project a sort of half dandy half pirate kind of image <laughs> they also wore these totally crazy flashy shirts that were handmade by their lovers they were de- they were covered in decorations like ruffles and beads and rosettes and covered with all- just all kinds of designs They were designed to be useful. They had, for instance, large breast pockets to hold ammunition and gunpowder, but they were also designed to be individualized and to represent the relationship between the shirt's female creator and the fighter. The example that Byland gives is is a photograph taken of the pro-Confederate guerrilla known as Bloody Bill Anderson. And I will uh, make sure that it's in our show notes so that you can get an idea of what we're talking about.
0: So before we... Go too far down this wacky shirt trail. We should give a little bit of background about who Anderson was. Bloody Bill Anderson was born in Kentucky, raised in Missouri, and then lived in Kansas as a child during the Bleeding Canvas Conflict. Um, His family was very pro-slavery, even though they themselves were too poor to be slave owners. So he was very steeped in that culture of vigilante justice and violence that permeated Kansas in the 1850s. Anderson became a guerrilla when his father was killed by a friend of the family. Anderson murdered his father's killer and burned down the man's home, and then ran off to join forces with other pro-Confederate guerrillas. Anderson joined a band of guerrillas under the leadership of William Quantrill, who remains one of the most famous participants in the war.
1: Yeah, he's he's famous just in general, not even beco- he's not just a famous guerrilla. He's just a famous kind of confederate at this mm-hmm. point. Together,
0: they participated in the raid on Lawrence, Kansas, which had been an anti-slavery unionist stronghold since the days of bleeding Kansas.
1: Lawrence was known for being sort of a home base for Unionist jayhawkers. In late August 1863, Quantrill led over 400 raiders into Lawrence where they caused immense destruction, burning buildings, looting, and killing something like 150 men. After the attack on Lawrence the Union army cracked down severely on pro-Confederate guerrillas like Quantrill and Anderson. To make it easier to escape capture, Quantrill's men broke up into smaller bands, one of which was led by Anderson. Now, in charge of his own band of raiders, he started wreaking havoc on Missouri. In September 1864, Anderson led his men, disguised in Union uniforms once again, um, he led them against the town of Centralia in Missouri. They then turned on a train That was carrying Union soldiers who were on furlough or or on leave. They ordered the soldiers off the train, shot them all, and then mutilated their bodies, even scalping them. So think back for a minute, back to that Liber Code and what it says about kind of wanton mutilation, um, unwarranted violence. I mean, this was um, just unacceptable. Afterwards, there was one lone Union soldier who survived, um, who described it as the most monstrous and inhuman atrocities ever perpetrated by beings wearing the form of man. And as just a side note, with Anderson that day were the James brothers, Jesse and Frank and Cole Younger, who went on to become very notorious violent bandits in the wild, wild west.
0: Anderson was obviously pretty infamous and the Union army really really wanted him dead. Yeah. This was not just ju- this was just not how soldiers were supposed to behave themselves. Torturing,
1: mutilating bodies,
0: scalping.
1: Yeah, scalping. 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 That's right. wild. And we'll c- we'll come back to scalping in, in a little bit.
0: Those were all acts associated with Native Americans who often performed such acts on the bodies of killed white soldiers in the West. So they're kind of flipping the script on how white men behave in civil society or perhaps trying to emphasize that this is not a civil society. Right. This is war. And in the war words of William Tecumseh Sherman, war is war.
1: Right. I mean, I think that there's something interesting here about in a way the guerrillas are actually sort of more honest about war, about mm-hmm. what war is. Mm-hmm. Right. Like This is what war is, is, is violence and destruction and an upending of the rules of society and you can't control it. You can't yeah. put it into some sort of pretty box right. with laws and with rules.
0: Anyway, about a month after Centralia, Anderson was pinned down by union forces and and shot in the head and killed. Killing Anderson was a major coup? Yes. Okay was a major coup for the Union Army and they really wanted to drive home that they had defeated this man who, for many, was a popular hero and legend. So they propped him up and had his photograph taken in his gorilla shirt. And this, in a way, fit into a sort of culture of gender and death that rose up in gorilla bands. It was dangerous, risky work. That's sort of what made it fun. And men wanted to know that If that happened, their shirt would help to cement their legacy. As Bylan says, they might harbor fantasies about that their lovers would someday be holding a photograph of their body, dressed in the gorilla shirt and wielding weapons used protecting her from attackers. In Anderson's case, this was literally true. The photograph we have of him in his gorilla shirt is of his dead body.
1: Yeah, and he's sort of propped in a way um, where he's kind of like it's like slumped back but he's still his body still looks sort of like ready for motion and he's Mm. got his his gun his his pistol in his hand like he's ready to go um but he's dead it's a it's a really powerful photograph We know the emotional connections between men and women were really important during the Civil War. Lots of historians, including Stephen Barry, have also pointed out how critical love, romance, and girlfriends essentially were to Civil War soldiers as positive motivation, right? Like got to get home and bone my wife or got to get, you know, got to protect my lover. Mm-hmm. Um, but also as negative motivation, right? If I don't fight, if I don't enlist, my girlfriend's going to break up with me because I'm a chicken. So that apparently also held true for guerrillas. Protecting women was a really powerful, motivating factor for many Confederate soldiers. But in guerrilla dominated Missouri, that protection was really immediate. Women were not necessarily safe from terror and violence. This was true for Bloody Bill Anderson as well. Part of the motivation for the attack on Lawrence, at least for Anderson, was to avenge the death and serious injury of his two sisters. His sisters, Mary Ellen and Josephine, along with a couple of other girls that were sort of friends of the family, were being held in a women's prison, arrested as part of an attempt to get guerrillas to surrender. The prison collapsed. Josephine was killed, and Mary Ellen was injured in such a way that left her permanently disabled. They were only teenagers, quite young. I think they were 13 and 15. This attack on women, even though it was actually just really a tragic coincidence, affirmed everything that pro-Confederate guerrillas wanted to believe about ruthless, depraved Yankee invaders. And I just want to meditate for a minute on this sort of conflagration of gender and violence that existed in guerrilla warfare and again i i'm really here just fangirling over this great article by joseph bylin we mentioned um avril mentioned that anderson and his men scalped men when they attacked centralia when anderson was killed he was found not only with scalps hanging from the bridle of his horse but with locks of his wife and sister's hair in his pockets tied up in ribbons. And and Bylin weaves this incredible metaphor of feminine ribbons juxtaposed with the bloody flesh of murdered soldiers. Gorillas were these hyper-masculine men who were lovers, actors, protectors, and murderers. They were vulnerable, but they were violent. Um, by wearing their gorilla shirts, they wore their hearts on their sleeve in this great way of explaining this that Bylan has. It, I just think that this adds such an incredible and fascinating new layer to what we think about manhood and civil war soldiers. And it blows my mind and gives me, as I say, a civil war gasm. I
0: don't think anyone's ever said that. We do. Okay. Oh, okay. But even though we're, we focus, mo- okay. So, but even though we have focused mostly on Missouri, where guerrilla warfare was certainly at a a fever pitch. Right, yeah. There were guerrillas in other parts of the Civil War West. In fact, we usually don't even think about the Southwest, like Texas, Arizona, New Mexico, when we think about the Civil War. But the Far West, while maybe not the Central concern at, at all points during the war, was an object of desire for both the Confederate and Union governments. After all, both regions were at work on imperialist projects as they expanded westward before the war, whether to grow the slaveocracy or to spread the opportunity for white men through homesteading and business opportunities. The Southwest was also littered with federal forts and arsenals, populated with not a heck of a lot of men. Right, so they're vulnerable. So, when the war began, the Confederate officer named Henry Sibley hatched a plan called the Sibley Campaign, or the New Mexico Campaign to seize the Southwest from the Federals by convincing Texas to Texans to enlist, and then work their way across the Southwest to California, where they could use Californian ports to get around the tight blockade the Union forces kept on the south. So even though we think of the Southwest as at best marginal to the conflict, right, it was act- an actual sort of uh, it was actually sort of central to their hopes for the future.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: In between Richmond and California, however, were a whole lot of Indians of different tribes.
1: Right. This wasn't going to be a simple, straightforward kind of march to California. Right. right? There were people. In the middle, who had a stake in all of this. People. So even though the federal government had had troops in the Southwest at forts and arsenals for decades, they hadn't established particularly good relationships with Native people. They never thought that they would really be that important. (laughs) Typical, right? (laughs) 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 Suddenly, it was very important. Each side of the divide, both North and South, tried to get Natives to work with them rather than the other Ultimately, the Confederacy was actually more successful at this. Natives proved to be ideal guerrillas. After all, so many of the guerrilla tactics, as we just you know saw, were stolen from native styles of warfare. What Americans perceived as irregular warfare was just a natural part of native culture. Raiding, striking quickly, stealing supplies and livestock, you know, trying to undermine your, your enemies by stealing their horses and things like that, um, and surprise attacks. Southwestern natives were expert horse people and they understood the climate and the landscape far better than whites. I mean Ooh, question. Yeah. How were Southwestern natives such great horsemen if horses were introduced to America from Europe? The Spanish brought horses with them during their conquests and the Indians took them and incorporated them into their culture.
0: I just, said, I just remember
1: thinking that that super interesting when I, I found out that horses were native to right. the US. Right. They yeah. and, and they incorporated them very quickly and very thoroughly mm-hmm. so that for Plains Indians and for Southwest some southwestern tribes they couldn't exist. I mean, think about the Lakota and the the buffalo hunts. They couldn't yeah. exist without horses, mm-hmm. right? Um but that was and that's another reminder of the fact that Indians have history too. Mm-hmm. Right? That they We think of them as, like, Native have been unchanged across time. They had such an ancient lifestyle, and and their cultures changed just as anyone else's cultures changed. Thank you for that interesting aside, Marissa, that I had an actual answer for. Yay! I just made you look very smart. Yes. Natives also knew that this conflict could be of use to them. They could use it to demonstrate their superior fighting skills, protect their lands... And perhaps if they chose correctly in the end, perhaps they could win some leverage. Megan Kate Nelson, who writes about this really beautifully and is kind of doing some pathbreaking work on this, um, makes this argument that this wasn't whites incorporating natives into their civil war as much as it was natives incorporating whites into their culture of what we would understand as guerrilla warfare. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. They already had a culture of war yeah. and whites were just a new combatant in it. Um, And eventually the raids from native guerrillas on both the Confederate and Union campaigns into the Southwest ended the Sibley campaign and ended any Southern hopes for a Confederate empire in the desert Southwest. Even though this demonstrated That natives were dangerous opponents. It also meant that without the Confederate threat to the Southwest, the Union Army had now extra men and resources that they could devote specifically to their imperialist project of the West. So even though it shows us how um, powerful natives could be as opponents, it also ends up giving more strength to the campaign that eventually ends native military force.
0: Okay. Something we've been dealing with this summer and, the, and fall is the memory, or the ways that we remember, the Civil War. Suddenly, the, the ways that the Civil War was framed and portrayed in monuments to Confederate leaders is under really close scrutiny. The post-Civil War project to reframe the Southern War cause... Emphasized the glory of battle and the tragic genius of Confederate leaders like Robert E. Lee and Stonewall Jackson, and absolved these heroes of any guilt or error that led to defeat. That was the Yankees' fault, and it was unavoidable because of the North's overwhelming wealth in resources. These men were good, genteel Southern gentlemen. They were Christians. But they were also swift and decisive leaders on the battlefield. So how did Southerners try to incorporate and understand men like Quantrell and Bloody Bill Anderson, who upended everything Southerners believed about the gloried leaders of the Lost Cause? Guerrilla memory was shaped in a number of ways that sometimes fit and at other times set apart from the larger Lost Cause mythology.
1: Matt Halbert, who's a historian of Civil War guerrillas, is sort of the king of this. It's a, His new book is called The Ghosts of Guerrilla Memory, deals with the ways that people tried to shift and shape the guerrilla experience into this post-war myth-making. And in some ways, it was similar to the shaping of the Lost Cause figures like Lee, who was turned into literally something of a demigod in Southern literature, they, they, this kind of apotheosis, right? Hulbert tells the story of John Newman Edwards, who uh, was a, a journalist, who tries to do the same sort of thing with William Quantrell. He turns Quantrill and his men into Dark Knights, sort of a Batman-esque <laughs> way. Um, but not
0: like George Clooney Batman, but, no, no but Christian, Christian, Christian Bale
1: Batman, man. right? Yes. Like, he's still endeavoring to do an honorable thing, but in a phrase that I just stole from Elizabeth in a sort of extra legal way, right? He's breaking the rules, but he's doing it for the right reasons. That's what I was trying to say. Um, Because he can't really turn him into a saint like Lee, right? But he can invest him with superhero like powers and this hyper masculine persona. For instance, Edwards describes Quantrill like this. A living, breathing, aggressive, all-powerful reality. Riding through the midnight, laying ambuscades by lonesome roadsides. Catching marching columns by the throat. Breaking in upon the flanks and tearing a suddenly surprised rear to pieces. Vigilant, merciless, a terror by day and a superhuman, if not supernatural thing. When there was upon the earth blackness and darkness. Right? I mean, that's... That's like... Sort of like comic book sounding stuff, right? Yeah. So, yeesh. He's the Dark Knight. It it has this, also has this intense fetishization of weapons. Edwards describes gorillas caressing their pistols as they clean them lovingly, right? Quite an image. Gorillas, Edwards tries to explain, were protecting their kin, which they sort of expanded out to include the entire southern cause. It was just sort of an extension of protecting your own people. Murder was justified when a dangerous, evil, grasping Yankee force was invading their home. Again, reshaping mm. the home as the southern
0: the whole south, yeah, yeah. region.
1: But the project had a bigger purpose than just deifying guerrillas like Quantrill. Edwards hoped to... Edwards hoped that reshaping the guerrilla conflict in this way would get Missourians, Missourians, thank you, to reject Republican politics in the same way that guerrillas rejected evil Yankee invaders. Mm. And of course, this is just one slice of this this book that Mm. I'm sort of um, referencing here, which goes on to talk about all the many ways that the memory of Civil War guerrillas was created and debated Um, But I I do think it's a fascinating glimpse into how Americans try to grapple with uncomfortable and difficult history. Because Confederate guerrillas were violent, awful, rule-breaking, really truly terrorizing people in in horrible ways. Um, And when you hold that up to the story of the Confederacy that the Lost Cause gives us, I mean, that, those, you're talking about two completely different things, right? right? You can't have the white knights mm-hmm. of Lee and, and Stonewall Jackson who are revered for their Christianity mm. um, and their goodness and how they kind of hate war while being practitioners of war. They hate that they have to do it, yeah. right? Gorillas are not acting Christian. They are not white knights. They're these dark knights, right? Yeah. Um, and they love the war, and they love the war. This is
0: they love the violence. Yeah, they they embrace
1: it. They're not. They didn't enlist. They're just doing it because they want to. You know, um. There's this other thing that Matt Halbert talks about in his book, which is how Confederate guerrillas committed these really atrocities, Mm -hmm. right? In in places like Missouri. But then they go on after the war. A lot of them, the the, the James brothers, Frank and Jesse James, and um, Cole Younger, go on to become gunslingers mm-hmm. in the West, and they are super violent, obviously, right? But they become beloved parts yeah, of American that's culture,
0: romanticized, too. exactly,
1: right? right? And and so we we love this <laughs> stuff, right? But we also have to grapple with the fact that. You know, Jesse James committed these atrocities during the war. He's in in order to maintain the glory and the sentimentalism that is the lost cause. Mm -hmm. You have to take Jesse James out of the Civil War and put him in the West where violence was acceptable. Does Mm -hmm. that make sense? It does. And that's that's sort of the process that he that that Matt talks about is how Civil War guerrillas stop actually having something to do with the Civil War. And they become Western gunslingers and outlaws. Okay.
0: And the same, the same way, right? We conveniently forget the flaws of the heroes who are the Confederate monuments, mm-hmm. right?
1: Right, yeah. People love the Civil War; they are extremely emotionally invested in it. Yes. In order to keep loving it, we have to divorce the white supremacy from it, and mm-hmm. we have to divorce the these horrific acts of violence that yeah. that don't fit into our box of what Civil War violence was. Yes. Right. We have to remove those things and, mm-hmm. and turn them into something else. And that's the process of memory. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that this is all really fascinating and I'm excited to be having this. And I hope that this, these conversations are helpful to, you. to folks out there who are grappling with how to have these conversations or even just grappling with how to understand what this debate is about.
0: Right. And this will be continued in the next episode that you do with Elizabeth. Yes. On yep. Texas. Mm-hmm. This whole conflagration. Yeah. So, on behalf of all the women historians here at Dig, I'm Avril. And I'm Sarah. And we thank you for listening. If you get a chance, as I asked at the beginning of the episode, we would really appreciate it yes, if you leave please. us a rating and a review on iTunes. And always make sure you are subscribed so you're getting the newest um, and freshest episodes out of our feed Fresh. every week. Fresh. Thank you. Bye. Bye. This podcast was produced by the historians of Dig: Elizabeth Garner-Masarick, Sarah Hanley-Cousins, Marissa Rhodes, and me, Averill Earls. You can find show notes and further reading, as well as the archive for the History Bus podcast at digpodcast.org. Thanks for
1: listening. In 1854, as part of the ongoing battle over the extension of slavery... Congress passed the Kansas-nebraska act Kansas which at the time <laughs> sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry <laughs> we both held it together pretty well for a second
0: <sighs> Wow wow, Smith, that now. Will Smith. <laughs> I
1: don't remember though. What is it? Bah, wah, wah. Yippee, oh, yippee.
0: Oh, no. <laughs> my. Yeah. Is that that song or is that Snoop yes. Dogg? No, it's. No,
1: that's I am right. You are wrong. I'm going to look it up later. I am sweating my sack It's off. really hot. Go in my bedroom. It's much
0: cooler in there. <laughs>
1: no one can take pictures of me.
0: Yeah. I'm pretty sure my mom called me a little puke many times. <laughs> <laughs> yes.
1: You were a little border ruffian.
0: I didn't know, but. I wonder if she knew. No, she didn't. Because she also used to (laughs) say things like, go wash your putty whackers," (laughs) Which meant your hands. Oh, funny. I guess. Not realizing what a pud might be, mom. Good job. Do you know what my mom used to say? What? Go, like, go wash your twat. I know! And when I found that out later... Does she literally just mean your vagina? (laughs) Yes! I don't know if she knew how, like... She thought it was like saying cooch, <laughs> but, but it, still, okay. mom, don't
1: say cooch to me I either. Know. Know. No, my mom, my mom calls it a twat. Also, yeah, oh my okay. god, my mom doesn't call it anything. She'd be no. mortified. She she would die before she would mention its existence really? Yeah. Oh my god. <laughs> oh god. Yeah. You, know you know what? No, she didn't say. She didn't anything. even say that. Didn't <clears throat> refer
0: to the reproductive parts of the body. You just,
1: you just never watched. Watch. Correct. I, didn't mean no, I, I specifically no. remember her calling me a twat, too. Oh, my <laughs> God. <laughs> a
0: young kid. Oh, my God.
1: <laughs>
0: and she's pretty prim and proper, too. So I don't know where she oh is. Oh, no, my That's mom calls it more often a snatch. Ew,
1: oh <laughs> Go watch your snatch. feathers are mortified
0: Oh my god. Oh wow. Learn something new every day. <laughs> so, anything, anyway, about the pukes. <laughs> Sorry. The pukes. I don't know i long. You gotta get it together here. <laughs> okay, okay.